Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale and I are really excited today to be joined by our dear friend Ryan Hurd, who is fresh off the boat uh, in the uh, in the foreign country of the Netherlands, uh, pursuing a PhD in uh, in theology at the Theological University of Kampen of Hermann Bobbing fame, uh, which is which is exciting. Um, but we have Ryan here today to talk about the theme of divine simplicity. Uh, Ryan and I maybe a year ago had a conversation about divine simplicity, but we wanted to add to that conversation today because there's a lot of things going on in Reformed churches over the discussion of divine simplicity. Uh, some of them, some of them very exciting, and some of them, you know, maybe things that we need to have, uh, you know, interrogate in some ways. And so that's the the goal of our conversation today. Um, you know, the first thing to say is it's fairly simple. We can see over the last 10 years or so that there is this kind of resurgence of the, uh, of the theme of explicitly articulating the doctrine of divine simplicity in, in, in Presbyterian and Reformed Baptist circles. I, I don't know, maybe Ryan, you can jump in right here. Where do you, wh about, about when did this, uh, I want to say maybe a Stephen Holmes article, something much too plain to say, was one of the first sort of sort of, and maybe what was that around 2010 or so, uh, maybe it was even a little earlier than that, but it was one of the first mentions of divine simplicity when it wasn't a big discussion, I don't think, in the evangelical scene. But then uh, I want to say by about 2012 or 13, you have Bill Zoll's books on divine simplicity. And it seems since then it's become just an enormous, uh, enormous discussion. Um, uh, but what we want to do today is just talk about, and, and maybe I'll just get right to it, brother. Um, what do you think are some of the, maybe the, the most basic thing we can do is just say, what are some of the, 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 the good things that are going on in the recovery of the doctrine of divine simplicity? What about that should excite people? Um, and, but also what are, in a very, uh, uh, we're, we're foregrounding our conversation because our whole conversation is basically about this. But on the other side, what are some of the challenges maybe in the, in a, at a 30,000 feet level of recovering divine simplicity that we need to, uh, we need to watch out for, be careful about. And then we'll sort of descend from 30,000 feet and maybe get into the specifics. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think there, it, it, we're seeing a lot of uh, great uh, interest in the divine simplicity again, which is very exciting. I think that as far as the historical impetus and the recent resurgence of interest is uh, manifold. There's a lot of iterations of it we see probably on the American or English speaking side of, of the world. Uh, a lot of the work in the analytic philosophy department, especially headed up with Al Planinga and, and guys like that back in the 80s, 90s, were having uh, discussions about the divine simplicity uh, in more academic circles. That's been picked up in more of the reformed seminary circles, if you will, mm -hmm. probably uh, quite a lot more recently uh, as you mentioned, James Dozal was, was very important in that certain debates that were happening among Presbyterians and Baptists over certain issues very much entwined with the resurgence of Reformed Orthodox studies with Muller and a large interest in natural theology again, recovery of Thomas Aquinas for Protestants and all those sorts of things. There's, there's quite a lot going on. You also have uh, kind of a lot of the Roman Catholic theologians and philosophers contributing to the discussion and, and coming at it with their own concerns and challenges and also targeting their own detractors, which sometimes when you start to try to weigh the good and the bad of the current discussion of the, of the divine simplicity, it becomes difficult to, to say what's good because sometimes it's good over here for this group, but bad over here for that group. And mm. So that, that's really tricky to navigate. Uh, I think among Roman Catholic scholars, I think of especially someone like Brian Davies, uh, who, who's really targeting a theistic person, uh, personalist approach, as, as he coined the term. Among more reformed theologians, they're primor primarily concerned about open theism or soft versions of open theism mm. uh, that, are, that are, especially in the confessional context, seeming to strike against the heart of you know, certain 16th, 17th century reform, reform confessions. And, and all of these are, are broadly speaking, similar uh, concerns. And, and I think that 
one of the many good things that we can say about the, the movement as a whole that's now called classical theism, which congregates, we found so many people in Roman Catholic circles, Protestant circles, even some Eastern Orthodox circles, but again, that's primarily the, the English speaking scene. It's just the fact that uh, a lot of the, the theistic personalist direction or the open theist direction is being uh, stood against pretty, pretty hard. And I think that's really important. That's um, a great recovery. Um, as you mentioned, we, we owe our, our Baptist brothers, at least in the reform world, uh, reform seminaries world, it's, it's primarily been the Baptists who mm. uh, were the first out of the gate and are really significant uh, work pointing out that this is a really bad direction for theology to go in and that this yeah. is not the uh, a, a direction that's permissible under orthodoxy, under Catholicity, little o, little c. And so, yeah, I think thus far, the, the, on the whole, the good things about the movement of classical theism ha has been just that, trying to steer us away from going in those directions. Let me ask you a question, um, <clears throat> because, and this was, I think, the three of us were kind of getting at this in our conversation a little earlier last or later last week. But when we say, um, when we talk about simplicity, that's almost like a positive statement. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here is like the way that we can orient ourselves is like a first step to even begin to use language to say something about God. So when we say the simple, you know, God is simple what we're really saying is God is not something, right? And so there's the negative is really what we're trying to get at into the whole broader conversation. So maybe uh, it, as a succinct as you can say it, and I understand that that's a tall task is to say this very simply, no pun intended, but what are we actually saying when we just use the words, God is simple? Yeah, uh, I think that's a great point, and that's a really significant point that's not been clearly enough gotten a hold of in the conversation, just how negative the doctrine of divine simplicity actually is. It's purely negative. Right. Part of, part of, part of the, the seeming positivity that's floating around is, is probably because people are, are trying to confront detractions and errors, and so they're throwing up things in the way, and, and the, this all has the feeling of, of being something very positive that we set forward and we don't go against and, and whatnot. But yeah, as you say, the absolute uh, basic thing that we're saying when we say God is not God is simple is uh, that's purely paraphrastic for a negative judgment. God is not composite. So right. what I often advise people who are, who are trying to get a hold of this and not not get deceived by what words seem to say, but rather what we're actually wanting to point out with them is anytime they, they, they say God is simple or they think of simplicity, put it immediately into the negative and, and note that it's purely paraphrastic, broadly speaking, for, for God is not composite. Mm. And when you notice uh, or when you put it in that key, then, then you notice one of the reasons why there are so many iterations or seeming, as it's people call them today, models or versions of the divine simplicity also throughout history. And that's simply because that there are lots of ways among creatures uh, that, some, that something can be composite, some of which are well-established philosophically, some of which are new versions of composition where others have fallen away. And the, the, the point is to maintain that the basic uh, instinct of Catholic orthodoxy, again, little c, Catholic theology, has always been to deny whatever type of uh, composition is placed in front of it. And the basic impetus for, for doing that is, is simply either following scriptures indication, uh, denying bodily composition of God at the most baseline level of composition, yeah. or of course, on, on the natural theology side, uh, noting that uh, first cause is not something that can that can have material parts for among other among other things. Um, but as you go throughout the the halls of history and notice different types of composition come into play, 
or perhaps metaphysics becomes more refined and we have uh, larger and more, more difficult conceptually types of composition that are, that are verging toward being purely metaphysical um, or even metaphysical notions or something along those lines. Nonetheless, the basic impetus of the doctrine of simplicity remains the same. And that is whatever composition we discover is denied as, as not reflective of, of what God is fundamentally. So we, we take the, the, the bottom line, God doesn't have a body, either from a very basic philosophical point of which all people are agreed, or as a simple datum of scripture. And we can ratchet that up as far as we need to go, mm. depending on where people are going off the road. So simplicity doesn't have, as you say, any positive value in our talk about God, except in so far as it prevents people from doing bad things with right. respect to our doctrine, right. namely saying that God is a creature. So anytime right. someone thinks of God as being a creature in some way, we take a negative name and we tailor it to bring them back and say, no, God is not a creature. In uh, all these different ways of creature, creaturely being, we remove from our portrait of God one of which among many is this idea of composition, which um, again, depending on how far up you go on types of composition could be more or less significant of an issue if, if, if one is denying it, depending on the situation one finds oneself in. Right. You, um, uh, uh, relevant to this, and I think in, 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 as we've, we've, we've talked about this for actually a couple of years, Ryan, and I know one distinction that you often want to talk about is the distinction between, uh, and I think it's related to what Dale just said. Dale was just saying that it's not a positive statement. God is simple. It's a negative statement. God is not composite. And, and as you said, you know, God is simple is really just a, a way of summarizing this negation of all composition, creaturely compositions. Um, and, and, and so this is another way, perhaps an almost epistemic way to get at that same distinction is to say there's a distinction also between uh, knowing, I, I think you've made this distinction, knowing that something is the case uh, and then understanding how it's the case. Uh, so it's one thing to say, we know that this judgment that we're making is true. Uh, it's another thing to say, I know how it is that that thing is true. Help us, help us maybe apply that distinction to this. Like, where do you think, when we talk about the divine simplicity, um, how does the difference between knowing, knowing uh, a truth judgment that we can make and then knowing how something is true show up? Uh, uh, and in particular, maybe saying, we actually don't know how some things are true about God, but we only right. know that they are true about God. Uh, uh, and so maybe, maybe help us with that language uh, uh, fit to this controversy. Yeah, that's a, I think the distinction you're alluding to is uh, the distinction between dogmatics and systematics, uh, where dogmatics has to do, broadly speaking, with all of the, the true things that we can say with respect to their truth. And we, we utter that truth with uh, our judgments, our creaturely judgments, and on the other hand, the issue of systematics, which has to do with understanding what something is. Uh, simplicity is, is only going to fall, uh, really broadly speaking, into the realm of judgments. It's going to be a negative judgment, of course. So we, we judge something to be true, but in this case, it's, uh, it is not rather than it is. Um, but it's, it's a helpful distinction to to employ uh, in this discussion because it brings to the fore that when we deal with negative names in theology and when we incorporate any negative names, whether it's simplicity or infinity or eternity in, in a certain way, um, all of these are, are going to be things that we need to defend and we do defend and we, uh, we do so via the assemblage of, of different arguments and reasons to, to support their truth and to support our judgments and, and the need to, to posit true judgments and these sorts of things. But nonetheless, none of them have any positive value with respect to understanding what God is. They only have that purely negative value of understanding what God is not. Yeah. And it's, it's really easy to say that, um, but sometimes people just aren't so clear on how radical that actually is. Uh, in really changes how we do our theology, broadly speaking. Mm. So 
if I try to describe myself to someone who doesn't know me and I say, you know, I don't have the neck of a giraffe and I don't have purple toes and I don't have rocks growing out of my arms and all these weird things I can come up with. I've not told you anything of value about me. I've just given to you a series of judgments, which you don't really need to be concerned about because no one believes that about me or no one is right. led to believe that about me. When we get to the issue of God, because our minds are proportioned to creatures, that is to say they're ordered to know creatures, we're, it's the gift of God for us to, to look at creatures and have knowledge and, and we're immersed in the creaturely world. Our natural and native tendency is to think of God as though he were a creature. Right. That has to be resisted. And so negative names come into play and are extremely important in the sense of being preventative. But on the other hand, they truly don't reveal anything positive of God at all. So it's, it's totally in the negative and, and cleaning the, Blake's, the, 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 the slate clean, as it were, to make it blank for all the things that we know that God is that we then posit positively in the, in, in, in the work of theology. So one, one really important uh, application of this, which I see a lot of classical theists, I think, struggling with today is the tendency to think of either simplicity or some other negative name as something like a divine attribute that interiorly determines what God is or says that he is somehow better than he would be if he weren't simple and these sorts of claims, all of which uh, aren't really technically true and all of which are fairly good indications that you're probably mismanaging how you bring in these negative names to the entire set of names that we say in theology as a whole, which are not just negative, not just relative names, but also the positive names, which are the divine attributes like wisdom, goodness, and others of that sort. And right, uh, right. And, and, and if I understand uh, one of the things that you want to articulate to to this conversation correctly is uh, positing the problem that way, may, turning the negative name into a positive attribute, which is, you know, it's natural that people are, are struggling with this language, we're recovering it, and so there's a, a maturation process that's involved in that. Nevertheless, turning that into a, pub, a, a, a sort of a positive attribute maybe contributes to sort of generating all of the philosophical conundra that sort of surround the conversation now. It's like uh, all of a sudden to defend divine simplicity, we need to be talking about the art, you know, kind of analytic philosophy, things like modal collapse and that sort of thing. Whereas if, if I'm understanding where, where, where your distinctions go correctly, it's sort of like once you've generated those problems in the first place, you've taken a wrong turn theologically because this, the modality of divine freedom or the modal or something like that would not have been seen in the in the tradition as something we understood directly you know it's a it's a there's there's some things that it's quite rational to conclude or something we don't grasp in the in the how sense uh yeah i i think that's correct and and i think that we we also ought to understand that there are um especially for protestants protestants have to be really um, humble about their tradition as, as all people have to be humble about their tradition in the sense of its great strengths, but also its blind spots and weaknesses. And one of the things that Protestants need to be aware of is that even among the Reformed Orthodox, we see a really strong tendency really right out of the gate to make these names that are, that are traditionally negative um, and that uh, certainly among the medievals and, and prior to the medievals, certainly among the neo-scholastics neo and then broadly maintained throughout the Roman Catholic tradition, though there's some detractions and issues that, that, that uh, occur throughout the centuries. But nonetheless, even among the Reformed Orthodox very early, there's a tendency from the beginning to make these properly divine attributes. Mm. But again, we don't have to be concerned about the the name we call this set of you know this set of words we we deploy we can call them you know whatever we really want but traditionally speaking the names of the divine attributes are only spiritual or intellectual perfections actual good things which are positive right um, whereas that we also have these negative names over here 
And when you see in the Reformed Orthodox a tendency to promote negative names because they're not so fine on the metaphysics to this equal value with these other actual perfections, which, which theologians always knew there's some, some difference between simplicity, infinity, and whatever these are, and these, weird stuff starts to happen. This is where we see the distinction that most people in evangelicalism would be aware of today between incommunicable attributes and communicable. Now, yeah. the communicable attributes are these actual divine attributes, which are communicable because they are genuinely shared as, as God's goodness is, is shared with the world. Whereas we have this other set of names, which are incommunicable, namely negative names that only apply to God, but they're still good things that God has. We see right. reactions like, you know, the, the overthrow of, of natural theology, Bart and whatnot, because perfections are good. And these weird metaphysical names are bad. And it's because they've been treated bad in the tradition and right. uh, they really become the whole of what God is actually speaking, because these are just the communicable. Yeah. For, for our listeners, are there any exceptions to that in the reformed or in reformed orthodoxy? Are there any theologians that you think sort of came closest to preserving the distinction as you're, as you're identifying it? That's a really hard question because um, obviously the, the tradition is, is so diverse and you have to weigh each theologian, um, not just on what they say, but, but on what they do. In, in other words, they can, they can talk in wrong, in wrong ways of talking, but the power of their theology is not necessarily delimited to whether or not they said it right or right. said it wrong. So that's a really hard question. All I know is that broadly speaking, you see this very, very early on from the start of uh, really the rise of reformed orthodoxy after the first, second, third generation or so of, of, of reformers come along. So someone like Amandus Polanus, someone like right. Petrus Maastricht, you see this very, very early. Um, but but there is still an, an understanding and awareness that there's something different here. They just become less and less consistent about applying that and also less vocal about, hey, these are distinct and also understanding why they're distinct. And then what, what we do with them, because the distinction is only valuable insofar as you then stand back and say, aha, I, I now know that these over here are, are different and these over here are different. Well, now I'm equipped to bring them together in the unity. Right. Is, is there maybe a follow-up to that is, is, is that um, insofar as you're aware is there a parallel development uh, in that metaphysical trajectory with Roman Catholic theologians uh, in the early modern period? Do they also? They're, they're certain, yeah, they, they certainly do. I mean, starting in uh, by the 15th century, it's all it's already starting to slip. 16th century, 17th century, there's quite a large number of Roman Catholic theologians who are are starting to to a flail in similar ways. And, and broadly speaking, this is, this is due to the loss of, of clear metaphysics um, and, and metaphysical changes that, uh, you know, metaphysics had always been the handmaiden of the Catholic church as in little c Catholic church right. um, with the understanding that, you know, sometimes we push theology through philosophical categories uh, and, and we tensed it in those categories just because it's helpful because we all need to talk to each other in very precise terms to actually do the theological point, which these philosophical categories are more or less ancillary toward doing. But nonetheless, when you all of a sudden lose the very set determinate modes of talking and doing theology with changes in metaphysics, and, and as those changes become iterated throughout the centuries, um, yeah, these things, these more basic, more difficult issues start to slip. But even still, you see in the 17th century, I read neo-scholastics all the time who are Roman Catholic theologians who, who still say, you know, uh, these are what the theologians mean by the divine attributes. And then they say they're the perfectionis simplicator simplicas, which are intellectual or spiritual perfections. And these right. are not the negative names which are over here. And we don't treat the negative names th this way over here. But you right. see... Like uh, among someone like a Vasquez, there's a, there's a, a lot of slop in, in Vasquez already between these two issues. But 
theologians in Spain, especially the University of Salamanca seem to have it much more clearly than others. So guys like Banyas and Zumo and Ledesma and, and, and whatnot seem to be really, really strong on these basic distinctions. And so it lasts longer. But yeah, very, very quickly, it starts to be eclipsed. And then okay. Artesianism comes in and just, you know, theology moves on to other problems. Hey, so Carl, let me add- always <laughs> we use descartes at least i do just as like a handle like a like the yes the the the, the descartes who is the villain of all villains is is larger than the historical figure descartes (laughs) you know that's right so let me ask you so because i think part of and just to sort of like bring this down to a real practical level because i've also seen What's interesting, at least in America, is that the lay person is starting to get involved with the basic conversation. And uh, there, there, there are books that are being published that are on a more popular level, less in the academic world, more people in the pews picking up a, you know, um, with their favorite theologian that, you know, teaches at a seminary or whatever. And for the typical lay person to hear God is simple, not composed of parts, um, which is also, t- you know, um, tethered to the doctrine of impassibility, like God doesn't have passions, he's not moved by anything. And then people go, well, how can God love me? God is love. And then there's this whole psychological movement to where really it could rattle one's faith and go, do I even know God? Uh, and really, when we're talking about theology, that's what we're talking about. What you know, we're talking about discovering God. That's the first movement. So I, th- I want to say I'm sympathetic to a lot of lay people being one of them and struggling with this because there's no univocal, as you were saying earlier, there's no univocal, um, there's no point of coincidence in our everyday experience. And even when we read the scriptures that points towards something purely simple, not composed of anything on any level, there's nothing outside of creature that we can like mentally push ourselves. So if some, I think what you did at the beginning of the conversation was you said, you know, it's not a matter of knowing all the levels we can ratchet it up as we need it, as we find people where they're at and apply this doctrine to where they're at. Um, you just can't deny it. So if you can't, you can't say God is actually a creature. And is that the point of like, you know, being biblically uh, faithful to understanding our God? And then how much room should we give towards our interlocutors because of the, you know, complex nature of the conversation Different and like metaphysics and philosophy and yeah. Yes, yeah. correct. Yes. Yeah. I think you don't understand the rational real distinction pastor. Well, you know, out of the pulpit for you, you know, right. <laughs> right. right. I think um, that, that question, uh, Dale, and I think it's associated questions is really what keeps me up at night uh, quite a lot. Hmm. Um, there's a lot that needs to be said to that. Uh, I think that, that one of the early things that we need to say is that we really need to be honest and upfront with people uh, at, the, at the strange reality in which we find ourselves, which is, is a very unique time in history hmm. where all of a sudden lay people have access to theology. Yeah. And, and maybe, uh, not, not maybe, certainly there are good things about that and we're very excited and, and the job of theology is not to hold back knowledge, but to, to give as far as someone can receive and, and to, to really pull some along. But nonetheless, there are really, really significant dangers and to that extent drawbacks that come from the fact that someone can Google simplicity. And I think part of, part of those drawbacks are an unnecessary burden that is placed upon lay people, uh, a, 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 an unnecessary burden that's placed upon pastors, and then all the way up, however, you know, however far up the scale you want to go. And, and by going up the scale, of course, we don't mean anyone's higher up the, sure, the holiness sure, ladder sure. or anything like that. Right. You know, this is just a... Theology is, is strictly about delimiting tasks, and the church is strictly about delimiting tasks. 
and allowing the fingers to be fingers and the toes to be toes. Amen. Um, but yeah, when, when you are approaching uh, any individual, depending, uh, uh, depending on who they are and their, their gifts and their callings and whatnot, yeah, the, the most basic thing when you get to the negative names uh, is the, the goal is for them not to affirm the opposite of what the negative name claims. Now, that's a hard way of saying it, but what that means is we want them not to actually affirm God is composite. Right. That can be said in lots of ways. Let's bring it down to a very simple level. It would be bad for people to say and believe and live their lives uh, judging that God is a body, that God has a body. That's a false judgment. Hmm. When we confront that false judgment, we have a large number of options and ways to, to try to bring that person away from that false position, which is going to lead that lead them in, in, into bad way, bad areas. Uh, the most simple would be uh, to get them to simply stop making that judgment. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they now have to say God is not a body. Most people are immediately going to, to deal in that type of polarity, but not actually affirming does not mean actually denying the opposite. Those are, those are two different stages. So again, they, they mutually entail each other, but in theology, as we try to be very precise, we realize sometimes we just need to get people to not say what is wrong, even if they're not able to say all the way what is right. Now, again, most everybody is gonna be able to swip, switch right over and say, God is not a body, no problem. And of course, yeah. when we say, say God is not a body, we don't just mean mouth it with a mouth. We mean to, right. to understand like, you know, what does that entail? And what does that mean for how I think of what God actually is? So it's not this over here was, you know, when you start moving up to pastors who are going to need to be a little bit more adept, a little bit more equipped and, and have more responsibility because of their office, we need to expect a little bit more from them. So this is where, at least in my, in my judgment, um, I, would, I would want them to not say uh, God's attributes are really distinct. I would think that it would be very bad long-term, not just for a pastor to believe that, but for him to be teaching his flock continually that God is a, an assemblage of love over here and grace over here and etc. in a really strong sense. I think that's bad. Once again, to, to deal with that problem, we can get pastors to stop saying that, stop believing that, or we can train them to understand why we, we don't say God is an assemblage of really distinct properties or attributes or whatever, but rather we say God is simple in this sense, with respect to his attributes work, which are not really distinct. We can work on that. But even then, you're getting this into some extremely deep metaphysics that most people speaking realistically with respect to the amount of time they have, the amount of focus they have to dedicate yeah. to this task, and, and also speaking realistically, the amount of gifts that God has given them intellectually with respect to what they've been called to do you start ratcheting up to these issues of metaphysics and most people are not going to be able to get to this strong affirmation. Yeah. What I see, and it's very, uh, very concerning to me is that we have this whole rough way of dealing with things. Again, if, it, if it's perhaps somewhat correct or somewhat not uh, entirely backwards, yeah. we seem to think that, all lay people need to be able to say omnino simplex, God is simple in every way and understand the real distinction between existence and essence and as it applies among creatures and act and potency and how God is actus purissimus and all these sorts of things. And by the way, if you're not, you're probably not going to heaven. You must be a heretic. And your grandma right. probably was a heretic because she didn't know God was simple. So hmm. how could you be a faithful Christian? And oh my, and yeah, people are losing their minds. 
And I think a lot of that is because, again, theology has become something of a hobby for young guys on the internet to do. Yeah. Do we love the fact that people are learning about theology a million times? Right. <laughs> yeah. However, That's... we don't love when that becomes an exercise of dropping heresy bombs on other people who don't understand. Yeah. Or especially when we get to something like simplicity, which is so dangerous. If you actually know what you're doing with the doctrine of divine simplicity, you're going to be fine. But if you don't and you start pushing into this doctrine, it leads toward radical atheism and radical agnosticism hmm. in the sense that you can't know God at all. That's yeah. what happens uh, very, very fast. I've seen many young guys that happen to them. They start learning about the divine simplicity and they start having weird crises of faith. Totally understandable. I've gone through it too. I go through it at various times in, in, my, in my thought as well. But the, the point is, while it's fine to have minor crises of faith, we don't want to have major crises of faith because especially when they're stemming from misunderstanding rather than actual right. understanding these sorts of things. So, I yeah. think it's really insightful because there it, it seems like this is another, what, what I was thinking of as you're saying that, Ryan, is that this is another way in which you sort of see a larger cultural tendency toward ideology to show up in the theological sphere. And I was thinking about, you know, the, the idea of Googling simplicity. And that's true of everything. We Google all these doctrines and we go listen to our YouTube videos and get kind of a vague familiarity with political and economic or scientific debates of various sorts. And then we come and we do a sort of internet debate and sort of rest on uh, a kind of collection of regurgitated formulas that we can repeat at various, you know, invoke with some degree of like a, a, a quick-footed competence or something like that and conflate that with really understanding things. And there's an enormous amount of danger in that. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the other side of that then is to sort of like when you, ex you know, I often think like, I was, I was just listening, you know, you were just talking about like, what should you expect, uh, you know, even a, a clergy or something like that to know. And often it might be like they're getting the basic thing that you need in a very simple formula, like um, just every time, you know, you said what I don't want to see is this big separation of attributes. Well, the, the, the easiest way to solve that, the first step and solve that is just to think of all of the attributes as mutually modifying, right? In other words, God is, God's love is a righteous love, his love is a loving righteousness or whatever, and see all of them as sort of modifying each other so that there's some sort of, there's some sort big, of- Big soup up there, all mi mixed together and marinated. Yeah, and it's not, that's not an exact understanding. <laughs> That's not an exact understanding of, of the attributes, but it's, yeah, a, it's not it's not far off from from the greatest masters of theology. And it's pastorally useful. It's pastorally useful because you can say like God, you should never think of God. I remember a, 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 lay, from, yeah. a, a, a layman saying this to me when I was I remember I was studying Roman Catholicism and he was a little nervous about me and he's a layman. And he just came up to me. And the one thing he yeah. said to me was, Joe. All I, all I want to say to you, because he knew I was a brainy guy and, you know, he wasn't going to argue with me, but he said, all I want to say to you is uh, make sure that you never are pressed into the direction of uh, 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 where one attribute of God is played off against the other. So, if you know, just and righteous and all that, if you're ever in a place where something's kind of not there, you're in the wrong place. And that's, that's essentially, in a very practical pastoral way, the insight of divine simplicity. Or, or like, or let me say that differently, this whole conversation is in some way helping you see something like that, even though that's more a you know, phenomenological or, or visceral way to put it than a, than a more philosophical and metaphysical way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's right. And you bring up a good point too, Joe, that um, I, we want to be careful that we we, we recognize that much of the arguing on the internet sort of way of doing theology oftentimes is motivated by a, a deeply genuine desire uh, to know God and really flowing out of genuine deep love for God. And then being told the way you express this love is by mastering the divine simplicity 
or something along those lines. Or if you don't master all of these topics or, oh, you, you, you know, don't want to be an open theist. And so um, I think that there, it's really incumbent upon uh, pastors and other leaders to steer their direction away from, from having, having piety and, and having a even good understanding of God default in, in, into this, this sort of argumentative style about what God is not. Once again, it's just important to, to recognize it's only good to know what God is not when you need to say what God is not. Yes. Yes. Because, time. Uh, right. <laughs> because on a, on a so, real practical level, I mean, you were the article that you just recently wrote um, for modern reformation. Um, I, I found it helpful from, from like just a personal, because when I read my Bible, I read about a God with parts. <laughs> uh, you're right. I read about God's strong arm to save me. I read about, uh, the Lord expressing sorrow and, uh, feeling joy and anger and all of these things that I can relate to in a creaturely way. Mm -hmm. And so if we ever get to the point that we look, uh, you know, at our grandmother sitting in the pew next to us and she goes, you know, I just feel God's love today. And we're like, well, what do you actually mean by God's love, grandmother? Do you know that God actually does it? Like we've, we've taken the plain meaning of scripture that is in God's wisdom given to humans in a way that we can relate to it. And we've turned it into a battering ram. And I, I and think that Lord and thought ourselves wiser than God who revealed right. himself, especially Right. with arms and with a long nose in the Hebrew right. scriptures. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then what you said, Ryan, I think is the key is like, you only need to invoke the divine simplicity when you need to invoke the divine simplicity. These distinctions come up. Uh, this is one way I, I've learned to put it, I think is like these distinctions come up relative to questions that we're asking. And so it's like the catalyst to talk about that is the errors, especially errors, yeah. not, not even yeah. the questions. Yes. But, right. But to questions that were then answered wrongly. Yeah. Right. But it's a, it's a development in our, in our discourse and has its relevance, but only, only in as much as we're holding that discourse in our head and where it's relevant. And the yeah. moment we're not talking about that, you really can just talk about the God who loves you and it comforts you when you're sad and is, uh, doesn't like sin and loves righteousness and, you know, right. and have a, you know, your five-year-old has some understanding of that that's relevant. Uh, and, uh, and I think you mentioned part of, part of related to this too, Joe, that you mentioned a, a minute ago when something you've said to me privately, which I, I hope you won't mind me sharing publicly. No, it's fine. But there's, well, it might not be. Who knows? <laughs> oh. Sure, it's fine. Um, you, you mentioned and I thought it was just it's so incredibly insightful. You said a lot of theology today, people think it's, it's like the Ben Shapiro way of doing theology. And uh, this is totally nothing against Ben Shapiro or anything that Ben Shapiro stands for, but this sort of robotic, memorized, uh, you know, uh, you put a quarter in me and I'm gonna spout out this, these answers in response to this thing that you said or something along those lines is I, I, when you said that, I was like, Oh my goodness, that's exactly what theology <laughs> seems to be today. And it's yep. so against this wisdom approach of no holding things in tension, holding things back and also preventing theology from becoming an idol in itself and preventing one's goal in mastering the divine simplicity as not just stopping at noting what the divine simplicity is and being able to do those arguments well, but actually serve it for the higher purpose relative to, as you just said, yeah. the, yeah. the larger task of, of speaking of God, what God is positively really, really well. And so I think a lot of, especially the negative names, um, it's, it's very, very tricky not to treat them as an end in themselves, but, but to recognize that they're always needing to be pulled into a much right. bigger and deeper and, and fundamentally much more important project, namely 
project of saying what God is. I always say, if the divine names, which are divine attributes are adjectives, then the negative names like simplicity are adverbs. Hmm. They're only good when you do something with them. They intend hmm. you to do actions or jobs or mental movements. And most of which hmm. is removing stuff with respect to other things, namely adjectives. Yeah. Which then so, modify God. So I'll, I'll bracket off. Um, maybe this we're, we're, we're gesturing toward a close here, but I think it might help people uh, in the philosophical and theological community just to see this applied to a conundrum we come up with. So let's take, um, uh, uh, you know, so so when we. In, in, in our current discussion of, of divine simplicity, it's very easy to generate the problems we were talking about earlier. Like for instance, if, if God just is one with his freedom or something like that, does that make the world necessary? Because how could he have chosen otherwise? Or, you know, modal collapse arguments and this sort of thing. If you were to sort of sort of give that to the medieval tradition. If somebody, you know, if you got in your time machine and went back and you said, hey, 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 Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, how does your divine simplicity uh, not create this problem where God's knowledge makes the world necessary or something like this? Uh, because he's one with his knowledge, but his knowledge is of the world, therefore the world. Uh, what do you think, uh, what do you think, you know, the ancient, the, the, sort of, the sort of ancient model confronting that kind of language would do? Um, because, because what we do now is write a bunch of articles trying to address that problem directly, whereas what I gather you would want us to say is, Maybe there's ways in which some of these things can be addressed directly for other independent reasons. Uh, you know, so for instance, we can say like the modality of divine freedom isn't deliberative. So any objection that comes from from that kind of creaturely analog of freedom is just kind of poisoning the well. Nevertheless, it sounds like what you would want to say is that's not a problem you can generate in the first place. And yet, you know, people are still going to be bothered, right? If you negate all these things, uh, doesn't that, maybe here's what I'm really getting at. If you negate all these things, uh, I think a lot of the listeners might still be thinking, yeah, but if you negate all composition, doesn't that imply some positive sort of simplicity? And then all of these kind of analytic philosophy problems that come from that positive uh, thing. How would you, um, yeah, I guess, how would, how would you help them rethink those problems? Uh, or or, or are, are they, um, is there, maybe, maybe here's, here's another way of getting at this. Despite your qualifications, is there some way to scratch the itch of those problems still? So you, you want me to solve the modal collapse argument? <laughs> Alive, <laughs> like right, right here. Well, I guess, I guess the question is, do you think there's resources? Maybe I could just ask. I understand the question. I, I do, and it's a, oh, it's good. a good question. Good. The, an the answer, uh, it's difficult not to, not to, um, it's difficult, it's genuinely hard not to respond to all of these objections these, on the academic turf uh, in, in such a way that, that uh, doesn't treat them immediately as very trivial. Um, but to, to really speak very uh, humbly, and, but nonetheless forthrightly, yeah, the, the medieval tradition would not recognize the model of simplicity that they're combating that they think has generated these objections and problems in potential defeaters in the, in the first place. Uh, and that, that goes, uh, at, at least in my opinion, and as far as I can see, basically across the board of, of whatever anyone's talking about uh, against the divine simplicity today, as far as I can see, their understanding that of, of what simplicity says and implies it has no relationship uh, to speak of to what the, the little C Catholic tradition has, has meant by the divine simplicity. The biggest difference, as far as I could see, is um, it seems to me that all of these uh, defeaters and models, and then even those who attempt to uh, argue against these objections by uh, adopting them as problems and then showing that they default to some logical error or, or computational mistake or something. Um, they all funda fundamentally make the mistake of thinking 
that saying God is simple at the end of the day still is an affirmative judgment rather than being what it is absolutely purely a negative one. In the technicality of the theological discourse, there are various times in the tradition of doing theology and in the, in the system as a whole of doing theology that the difference between an error and truth rests on uh, one's reticence to move forward past what, where one can go. And, and this happens all the time in history of orthodoxy. Um, orthodoxy is all about being self-controlled and, and, and that's really what the best of theologians actually are. They recognize they could go forward, but if they went forward, they would be wrong. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't go forward or something like that. It just means that they realize one more step is wrong. So when it comes to this issue, when you get to the final dogmatic statement of the divine simplicity, which is established in, in dogma 1215, Latter and four, omnino simplex, God is simple in every way. Uh, again, purely paraphrastic for the declaration. God is not in any way composite, strengthened into, the mo in, into a more of a modal declaration. It is not possible for God to be composite in any way. That's really Either one of those uh, would be the final dogmatic statement of the divine simplicity. Either God is not composite in any way, or it is not possible for God to be composite in any way. Those are all judgments of negation. It is not possible for God to be composite in any way is a judgment of negation, which does convert to the affirmation. It is necessary that God is simple, or it is necessary that God not be composite in any way or something along those lines. We recognize that, but we recognize nonetheless that we don't have to make that conversion. And in theology, sometimes self-control is really the better way. And you look at all the theologians who are worth their salt in the tradition, they all push toward the one side. It is not possible that God is composite in any way, which is a judgment of negation that the mind is able to intend and make that judgment. And then they refuse to convert it because they know if they convert it to a, an affirmation in any way, uh, they lose the game. And that actually is an error. Not only do they lose the game, like, oh, somebody can play gotcha with them. Like you can force right. them to collapse, but no, actually you made an error. You made an error in moving from, it is not possible to, it is necessary. And as far as I can tell, most everyone working in the divine simplicity today starts off from the affirmation, God is simple. Well, Thomas Aquinas doesn't hold that God is simple. Thomas Aquinas believes that if you believe God is simple, then you believed in error. And you can't make someone judge God is simple, all of these sorts of issues. Those are very technical statements. It yeah. might be foreign to a lot of listeners and, and that's fine. You know, don't, don't get hung up. If, if that confuses you, just say God is simple. You'll be fine. Truly. Pull over your eyes. But if you need to pull out the big guns and you got the moto collapse guys going or whatever, you just need to point out that no, actually the tradition doesn't believe God is simple. They believe God is not composite and there is a difference. Yeah. So, that's how I think and it's, and it's a unique it's only at the kind of if I if I understand with the kind the kind of steps the tradition is making there is th that kind of non-conversion is only possible or only only um, a, a rational reticence at the creature creator boundary. In other words, we're sort of negating creaturely composition of God, but it's precisely because we're at the creature creator boundary and the negation of those compositions that we don't want to then jump over to the positive side of that. Uh, 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 in other words, in other words, if I were to say that any, any, any statement I would make about Ryan Hurd, uh, that convertibility, like any, oh, any yeah, sort of like, yeah. it's not, it, it's, 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 um, uh, convertibility work. Yeah. It's not possible yeah. that Hurd is X would necessarily mean for you. It's necessary that you're Y. Yeah. This, uh, this is it, an application of the basic belief that God is not contra reason or contra logical, but God is above logic. Logic is, is a, is a descriptor of creaturely reality and its rules in certain respects, um, 
only apply within the creaturely shell of, of created being. So part of what you're saying is that the, tradi the tradition is just much more comfortable saying, we don't, we don't know how God is what he is, like in a lot of ways. There, there's that, but there's also the recognition, I think is, it's uh, uh, an issue that many, many, many people are struggling with today. There's a much deeper apprehension in the tradition of the whole of the fact that logic as a formal discipline is merely the reflection of a series of intellectual acts. Hmm. And as a reflection of a series of intellectual acts and as their formalization on the page, as it were, logic works because the series of human intellectual acts goes this way and develops true knowledge and, and what have you. Yeah. But nonetheless, even though I can force on paper a logical error or a logical change or whatever doesn't mean that I've actually necessarily done that with my intelligence or that my intelligence is unable to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, every time I get to this point, I always jump over here and convert it and I'm okay. And this has always worked. And this is how we do creaturely reality. It is not possible. It is necessary. Bam, done. Okay. Move on. Yes. But nonetheless, there's a, there's, a, there's a difference there in the, in the intelligence. And when you get to issues like theology or issues like philosophy, those differences become very important. And so the discipline of logic doesn't become violated. It just shows it's, that it's proper boundaries. And, mm. and, and, and when it's merely reflecting what has occurred within a mental state or an intellectual state of a human individual, um, it, it makes perfect sense. And, uh, and again, nothing's violated, no, no errors are spat out, but that's just because you have, you have, to, be, you have to be controlled. Hmm. Yeah. It seems like what you're saying, Ryan, is we should all just be a little bit more humble <laughs> and understand our limitations as creatures. And that solves a lot of our conundrum. You know, we remove a lot of the problems. So, and let the, and, you know, I think one time, and then we'll wrap it up after this, but one time I think you made a, it was either a Facebook post or maybe it was in a private message conversation. I don't remember where you were saying, you know, the doctor, the office of doctor of the church is something that needs to, you know, we need, we need to make doctors of the church great again, sort of uh, bring them back They're, They've disappeared. Um, and I think that to a certain extent that if we had, at least in the Western church, um, an office for that, that was carved out where you could give this guy, you know, send him off for 25 years in a sort of monastic lifestyle to study simplicity and then bring him back to like, give out the little pearls of wisdom that to the lay people, we would probably not be, of course, that's assuming we got rid of the internet because the internet has ruined everything. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but, but I think that the whole thing that we've been talking about is there's this scale of understanding. And as we talk about divine simplicity, wherever we find people on the scale, the arguments need to be dealt with in that particular way um, as relates to those people. And there should be grace and, and humility and patience and understanding and all the good fruits of the spirit that flow the out of us. Makes that makes, the, makes it impossible for a sage to operate in many respects because a sage operates by treating the person standing in front of him Whereas the internet broadcasts that entire conversation. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Great thing. I, I think though that, yeah, the church, church doctor, especially in the Protestant sphere or something that functions for that, recognizing this doesn't mean church doctors are on the top of the totem pole. Sure. Certainly not. Um, it's just I, their function, right? Well, it's just their pretty, gift. And I, and I always like to use the illustration, you know, John MacArthur is famous for using the illustration of pastors being waiters and they just are, you know, their job is not to mess up the food for God's people on the way out. I think church doctors are more like the dishwashers in the back that nobody sees and they're just huh. scrubbing all the crud off people's plates so that they don't eat anything that's wrong. And that's, that's really, you know, no one sees them, but they're really important. For church sanitation, uh, yeah. for theological sanitation. Yeah. That's, yeah. And I want to say, uh, maybe this is a tantalizing way to, uh, to, uh, to close and Dale, you can take us out. But one of the, 
maybe an advertisement for familiarizing ourselves with this tradition and the kinds of distinctions you're making, Ryan, is I, I want to say that you've told me that, you know, a lot of the disputes we're having in the theological community right now uh, over the doctrine of divine simplicity and the various sides that are played precisely because there, there's, there's some misframing in, in some of these locations, you know, if you read more widely in the tradition, you can see categories and distinctions that are actually rich with rich with potential to actually still satisfy a lot of people in the reformed community on various sides. And I think that's such a that's something that people need to be aware of to see that there's there's still resources out there that can actually help our churches even more than what has been popularly discovered, even by theologians. Uh, and that's a that's just something that yeah I don't know people should know and investigate I guess. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, brother, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm sure yeah. we'll chat again. Uh, this has been a great conversation on a bunch of different levels. So, yeah. and we we appreciate your time, brother. Keep up the good work over there in the Netherlands. We'll be uh, anticipating um, uh, the fruit of that work coming out uh, whenever you can. Take your time, though. <laughs> uh, as always, guys, you can head over to the DavenantInstitute.org and um, uh, check out uh, the Pilgrim Faith tab. Head over to uh, the Davenant Institute YouTube page. Like, subscribe, share the video widely. Uh, but until next time, Joe, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you. See you all next time.